I want to ask you a very, very simple question. Who am I? Don't give any response. Maybe you don't know who I am. <laughs> if I sit around saying, who am I? You probably say I ought to be taken to a home where people all sit around saying, who am I? Am I Napoleon? Joan of Arc? Florence Nightingale? Hitler? No, I'm asking a simple question, who am I? How do I define myself? Let's go back a second. The first lessons that you teach in a year, when you're a teacher, are vital. I'm thinking back to the time when I was a teacher. My first lesson was to a group of 30-plus boys in a secondary modern school, and I was to teach them French. I gave each of them a name tab. I gave them their name in French, of course. And within a few minutes, they were able to ask, what's your name? What's your name? And they were finding out who they were just by discussing, in French, of course, uh, who they were. The first lessons are very important. It sets a key for the rest of the year. I can remember my first chemistry lessons when I went to secondary school. The teacher was talking about the properties of things, the properties of gases. How do you tell oxygen from hydrogen from carbon monoxide. It's a good idea to get it right, to be quite honest. <laughs> Hydrogen's easy. If you burn hydrogen, it burns in air, you get water. Oxygen doesn't burn, it tastes all right, but carbon monoxide is quite a bitter taste, and it's quite good to know the difference between them. And sometimes it's vital to get the properties of things correct. Remember the old schoolboy rhyme? Um, poor old Johnny Jones. Alas, he is no more. For what he thought was H2O was H2SO4. Those who are with it will understand what I'm talking about. H2O is water. H2SO4 is sulfuric acid. But they are both clear liquids. How do you tell them apart? It is quite simple, their properties are this. If you add water to water, you get water. If you add water to sulfuric acid, you get heat coming off. It's an exothermic reaction. And it's quite good to know the observable features, the observable properties of elements and gases and so on around you. So I'll ask you a question. What are your observable properties. What makes you, you? Who are you? Who am I? In sociology, the properties are called identity markers. Your identity marks out who you are, which categories you belong to. Perhaps they make you easier to understand. So who am I? Well, I'm a retired Methodist minister. Yes, okay. I'm male, slightly below average height, slightly above, no, sorry, a lot above average weight. 
My hobbies are, well, I've got tropical fish and I collect stamps. I'm married to the good lady over there with the coat on who's smiling at me because she knew she wanted a bonus before Valentine's Day. Your religion, I'm Christian. Your denomination, I'm a Methodist. My nationality, I'm British. Profession, minister. Health, dodgy. Appearance, no comment. <laughs> Home, Haverhill, accent, nondescript. These all define who you are, and it makes life very, very easy for advertisers. Once they've got you pigeonholed into an easy, definable group that they know who to target their adverts at. Looking at the appearance of somebody, however, is dangerous. It's one of the most dangerous of the identity markers. We think we know a person because we have assessed their outside look. Or to be exact, we've placed them into a nice, neat pigeonhole that enables us to move on without thinking about who that person really is. Who is behind the outward appearance? It's the recipe for lazy thinking and for discrimination. Let's just imagine this. You were born in Yorkshire. Your father was German and your mother was Welsh. That means you're tight, ruggedly efficient, and you sing like a nightingale. You've defined a person by markers which make it easy to deal with them. The French novelist Honoré de Balzac, my hero, was a bit like the French version of Charles Dickens. He wrote many, many novels between 1799, or oh, years 1799 to 1850. He wrote many novels about the way people reacted. And he had this strange belief that if you looked at a person you could tell just by looking at them what their character was. Just imagine that. Just by looking at your face, he thought you could tell their character. So, for example, he tells in a short story about a little vicar who was seen scurrying around the town and he describes him like a mouse. He also describes the lady that he has offended and he describes her hands on the side of a chair as being like the claws of a lion and her nose like the beak of an eagle. And you know that that poor vicar has got his comeuppance coming. It's dangerous. It misses out the important thing about what cannot be seen. You are more than the sum total of what people think about the outside. You are inside a different person. And you are not to be dismissed because of your appearance 
or because one of the groups that you seem to be in, you are a different person from the one that we see. There is something going on underneath, inside you, which makes you, you. It's a little macabre, but perhaps you could try, if you get onto the internet, and ask, how much am I worth? You might not want to know. But you'll be told that if you start to sell off your body bits, after you've died, for example, like kidneys and so on, you're worth a good few thousand pounds. Nice to know, isn't it? But if you just sell the chemicals in your body, you're worth about three pounds. Fancy being told you're only worth three pounds. So you're worth more dead than alive. That's not a very helpful thing, I know, but well, never mind. But you are valuable not for what your chemicals make up, but for who you are. God loves you all without exception and loves you to the uttermost. But not just the person you see, but the person underneath. That is who is important to God, not the outward, the identity markers. Who are you? Who are you really? It doesn't matter in one level, because whoever you are, whatever's going on inside you, God will love you anyway. Now, how does this tie in with the parable of the Good Samaritan? That parable is full of these identity, identity markers, assumptions about the person. That's how they are judged that's how we see them. But what is the real person? What do we know about the people and the setting of that parable? Firstly, that road from Jerusalem to Jericho was difficult and dangerous and also extremely steep. Jerusalem was about 1,500 feet above sea level. And at the other end of the road, Jericho, was, only, was about 1,000 feet below sea level, a great climb. And it was a pilgrim road, a road for the pilgrims to go up, literally up to Jerusalem for worship. For the normal worship or for festivals or celebrations, you went up to Jerusalem. Many went that way, full of expectation and hope. They travelled slowly upwards, up, up to the holy city to worship in the temple. But that was not the case for our victim. If you remember, he and the Levite and the priest, it says, were coming down the road. They had come from the city. They'd come from Jerusalem and they were full of euphoria, I expect. They were going home. They'd been worshipping in the temple. They'd had a great religious experience. They all feel on a high and are probably looking forward to sharing their experiences with family and friends when they get home. But, but, it is not clear which way the Samaritan was going. He was certainly not 
going to Jerusalem for the purpose of worship. Samaritans did not recognize Jerusalem as the center for the worship of Yahweh. For them, it was a mountain called Gerizim. So for whatever reason he was there, it was not for worship. And he was not full of the euphoria that the others were experiencing. That story of the Samaritan also proves one other thing, perhaps, to us, that the temple worship had done little good to the people who had been there. They might be the experts in the wording of the law. They might be wonderful at knowing what to to do to be a good Jew. They might be on cloud nine because of their religious experience. But it had not translated into activity in their daily life. It did not apply to the victim on the ground. Perhaps on one level we can understand why the Levite and the priest had nothing to do with the man, the victim on the ground. Because it was said that if you touched a corpse you would be ritually contaminated. And they didn't know if he was dead or alive. He was left as half dead. He was just lying on the ground. All they could see was there was a potential source of contamination. And so they avoided him. And there's no compassion in their hearts. Nothing that they had said and done and experienced in the temple was affecting their daily life. They dare not go and find out. They dare not take a risk. After the priest and the Levite had discovered the victim and chosen to ignore him, along comes a Samaritan outsider. And he is moved with compassion. The victim has been rejected and left for dead by his own people, by his own representatives. These would, you think, have been expected to show compassion and deep feelings of care for him. We would have expected them to treat him one of their own. But they treat him as if he is a Samaritan, an outsider, somebody not wanted, unloved, and like the despised Samaritan who comes along later. They have been to the temple worship, which demonstrates God's love for society's victims. The outsider, the unloved Samaritan, with all their wrong identity markers, from the wrong race, that Samaritan is the saviour of the man who is the victim. That brings us, perhaps, to a completely different level of this parable. We come to the picture of Jesus. Jesus as a victim, despised and rejected by his own people and left for dead. Jesus takes his place as the ultimate outsider who is banished from his own people, the very ones he came to save. 
Jesus is numbered among those that are rejected, unwanted, unloved. Jesus is the ultimate outsider. The Samaritan is the saviour, the one they would least expect. But the Samaritan is not just a saviour for that one moment, but he pledges time and money and care for the victim. He will return and offer him continuing support. Whatever else you spend on this man, I will pay you. I will come back. I will care for you. His care and his compassion is not just for one moment, for one second. It is a continuing, passionate care, compassionate care for the man who has suffered. The eternal shepherd caring for his sheep. It's quite a template for pastoral care. In addition, perhaps we might imagine that in such a situation, the Samaritan is not just providing for the man who's been attacked, but he would also be risking mockery and hatred from his own friends, from his own family. For they all would have hated the Jews. And there he is, caring for a Jew. Imagine him going home and explaining how he's been spending his time and his money. What will his family and friends? He is prepared to put himself outside his own community. He is joining the victim as an outsider. But his compassion overrides his personal comfort. This brings us back to the identity markers. Who were these people on the road? How could we define them? How would they have defined themselves? How am I defined? Who am I? Where are my identity markers? And where would I have been on that road? But also, how do we start to define others? By looks? By outward appearance? By physical attributes? Or by the way they show that divine compassion of Jesus? Carer for God's sheep and our Saviour. On Racial Justice Sunday, remember those who are despised, not for who they are, but for some arbitrary decision based on appearance or some equally irrelevant criterion. We have decided that they don't count. They have no voice. Their identity markers single them out as victims. And these markers are imposed on them by other people. God's love is for all. These, the outsiders and unloved, are our neighbours. Treat them as you would wish to be treated. Love them how you would wish to be loved. You know what Jesus said to the lawyer who declared his attachment to doing things that were right. You have heard the story of the Samaritan. Go and do likewise.
Amen.